just be a moment. Am I coming through? Yeah, you're coming through loud and clear. Welcome everyone to the 1500th episode of Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, who could be more amazing than today's guest? He really needs no introduction, but in case you just crawled out of a cave, this is none other than Dr. T. Colin Campbell, the author of so many wonderful books on nutrition, the China study, whole most recent, The Future of Nutrition. He has one more book that I don't have in hard book form. I bought it on Audible called The Low Carb Fraud. And he's one of the most amazing people that in this space that I think anyone knows. And I'm so honored to have him here to celebrate our 1500th episode. Please welcome Dr. T. Colin Campbell. Thank you so much for doing this, Dr. Campbell. It's been such a, a while since you've been on the show. So I'm glad to see you again. Yes, it's nice to be in the 1500th spot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that shows you've been busy. Yeah. Well, in the last three years, you have such a great, people don't know what a great sense of humor you have, do they? I don't know. I, I, if, they know if they know you, but people are saying how much you change their lives. And I think, you know, when I think about it, you know, I've, I've been vegan for 46 years now. And when I see people, especially the doctors and especially people that are newer, it always seems that the book that they read is this one. Did you have any idea it was going to be such, an, a, such a success, this book? No, I didn't. As a matter of fact, I guess I've told this story a number of times, but uh, I don't want to be repetitive. You know, I was having a lot of difficulty in the scientific community with my ideas, and I was complaining. And one day, Karen told me, so stop complaining. Go write a book for the public. So I say that because when I was inclined not to do that because uh, it's not exactly the track that scientists take. And so I didn't expect it to do anything, but it did a lot. And uh, she was right. So I'm going to blame her for this. Uh, so, <laughs> no, I, I didn't expect it to do anything, to be honest about it. But it has now been translated to 50 foreign languages, even more. That's and, amazing. F 50 foreign languages. I'm going to be honest. I didn't read the book, but I listened to it. Okay. Yeah, because it, it, it was just, you know, it was beyond my pay grade, but listening really helped me understand it. And it's a book that so many people point to as the reason that they adopted a plant-based diet. And as a matter of fact, you're the one that coined the term plant-based, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I did back in the late 1970s. I hadn't got exactly on that track at that point in time, but I was in a transitory period. And I was asked by my colleagues on a government committee that I was on that determines who gets funding, who doesn't, you know, in area cancer research. And they wanted me to talk about a few applications that were coming in that hinted that nutrition might make a difference for cancer. And so I took some time and I didn't want to use the word vegetarian, vegan, to be honest about it. Uh, I don't track exactly the, the, the science behind that is not exactly what I talk about. So I, I tried to think of another word uh, and thought of my good brothers. I said plant, plant-based and then Three or four years later, uh, I added the word whole after being the, the one testified on behalf of the government on, on some claims about things that weren't exactly right. Now, anyway, I put the two words together. That's what well, I I'm glad you added the word whole to it because plant-based can be extremely unhealthy if it's not whole. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
do we do we have another book to look forward to from you? Yeah, I've got one now. I don't have a name for it, but I'm two thirds away done. More than that, maybe I'm eighty percent away done. Uh, I'm doing something might be considered to be a bit stupid and risky, but I'm used to that world. Um, basically, uh, the question that arises for all of us, I think, is why haven't the public uh, really adopted this concept of nutrition? Why has it taken so long? And so I've got a, a perspective that's not usually told. And that is what goes on behind the curtain in science? What's going on behind the curtain in policy, in food and health policy? I've got a lot of experiences. So I'm telling those experiences. I know what I'm doing is some risk. I don't like to complain, you know, about individuals doing the wrong thing. But, you know, I've seen it and it tells so much. It tells so much why it's so difficult. When in fact, eating plants in a whole food form is a big deal. It's really, really big. Do you have a title for the book yet? I don't. I just haven't quite figured it out. Karen wants me to use the word control. Because it's all about who controls the information. And that's, that has a lot to do with it. Nice. It is about control, really. Uh, you could guess who's doing all the controlling. But it's very pervasive. It involves a lot of uh, agencies and people and ideas, but it all comes down to one thing. It's uh, those who make money on the idea of nutrition. Uh, they kind of like to control their their uh, their work, and so it's tough. I mean, it's, I'm saying a lot of things that people sort of already know, but they don't know the details and how it really happens. So. That's what I'm doing. Well, that's fantastic. I can't wait to read this book. Well, do you see this changing anytime soon? Well, you know, there have been some changes in the last, what, 10, 20, 30 years, I guess. In a way, uh, the, the word, that plant-based thing that I was hoping would have, have created a wider audience. And so it took some time. Gosh, I didn't see the word around much for the first 20 years. But then in the last... Uh, you know, 10, 15 years has kind of taken on a life of its own. And uh, I mean, veganism, vegetarian, let's face it, it's, it's fine. But, but uh, and that there's an audience for that. And there's a, a reason, a rationale for, you know, following that, though that idea about ethics, especially when the welfare of animals, that's fine and dandy. But I, I, I've lived in the world of science. I have to look at data. And, you know, I was from a farm, as you know, milking cows. And I did a doctoral dissertation on promoting the consumption of more animal protein. That's, that's where I came from. So, you know, for me uh, to actually transition from that perspective, that point of view, especially professionally, uh, was a big deal. That was a big deal. And so I wanted to, as much as possible, emphasize that I did that because of the data. I mean, I was on the other side of the of the argument. And uh, what I saw was so convincing. So we changed our own diets too, because of that. And I, I just find that people, when they, when they hear the basic arguments and the science and they can look at it, it's hard to walk away from it. And so that's what I'm basically all about. How have you been spending your time these days? How do I? 
How have you been spending your time these days, especially since the pandemic? Because you used to travel quite extensively. Yeah, I did. I still travel some, not very much. Do a lot of virtual lectures, uh, for one. Uh, and I'm sitting and writing, uh, which I've done all my life, I guess. I, I don't know. That's uh, what I've been doing. Um, and uh, I still got some more to do. I think we're going to have to wrap up that part of my life. But what's so, the best? What's the best change you've seen in your lifetime? Um, gosh, that's a really good question. Uh, the change is most remarkable, at least now. It's for the worse, unfortunately, not for the best. You, you, I mean, you want an answer? What do I see that you know, gives me hope? I guess it gives us hope. Uh, and uh, it's this idea of really understanding what the word nutrition really means. That the word nutrition gets uh, used interchangeably with the word food, uh, with the word diet. Uh, and it really makes something different. Uh, nutrition is the stuff that goes on in our bodies after we consume food. It's truly amazing. Uh, and it's all the nutrients working together from a certain class of foods. It's that simple. And when you start looking at all these so-called reactions and all this fancy, very highly technical stuff, what you see is that you see Mother Nature working, the way I'd like to put it. Mother Nature knows what she's doing. She's been doing it for a few million years. And sort of developing this, creating this complexity, infinitely complex, but do it in such a way that everything tends to work together when you eat the right food. It's truly amazing. And uh, so I don't know, I've really gotten caught up and got very excited about that idea. You say something in this book, Whole, that I love. I mean, you can write all the books you want, but I think you've kind of encapsulated it on page seven of Whole, where you say, the ideal human diet looks like this. Consume plant-based foods in forms as close to their natural state as possible, whole foods, eat a variety of vegetables, fruits, raw nuts and seeds, beans and legumes, and whole grains, avoid heavily processed food and animal products, stay away from added sugar, oil, and salt. And I mean... What more do you need to know? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, that's why I say whole food, plant-based. I mean, that just kind of captures an enormous amount of complexity that we'll never be able to know exactly what goes on. Uh, and, you know, whether we're talking about artificial intelligence and fancy computers or not, that, that kind of uh, technical expertise and magic uh, we'll never know, never fully describe exactly what everything is doing, where it's going, how it interacts, and so forth and so on. I mean, that all the technical stuff, uh, it's interesting, it helps you inform, but there's something more just causing all this stuff to work together. It's just incredible. It's indisputable. You said you wanted to title today's discussion because you have to have a title in order to broadcast simplifying food and health is that basically it what you wrote in that paragraph or is there more to it no that's that sounds good aj okay then we'll just say goodbye to the viewers no just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> i'm just kidding of course yeah that's you know it's amazing because you, you the whole family is on board you know we, we've talked to so many people that struggle because their husband or their wife or their kids won't do it you've got a huge family of children and grandchildren 
and they all seem to have gotten the memo. Well, thanks to uh, Karen, my wife, this is our 61st year. And uh, so she she wasn't into this at the beginning. I was not into this, and we come from uh, somewhat different backgrounds. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, she really got excited about when I was finally decided to write a book because she said the children of the world had to know this. So that was her big thing. And they don't. The parents don't know don't know this well enough to start their children out in life, you know, taking this seriously. Yes. Did I hear you correctly that you've been doing this for 61 years? No, for married, I was married 61 years. Over, oh. yeah, 61 years. Okay. I've been doing it longer than that. If I count my graduate work, when I was doing research showing the importance of animal protein, for example, that started in 1956. Wow. Add up the numbers. That's, I think it's the 67th year that I've been doing this research, yeah. Wow. And when did you adopt the plant-based diet personally? Well, it's gradual. Uh, I mean, the evidence started, I mean, what I saw in the very beginning, or fairly soon in the beginning, that my belief about animal protein being important, because we all, in, in professional nutrition, we all kind of believe that. You know, it's a very important nutrient. We have to have some, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, then when I was in the Philippines working with malnourished children and creating a program there uh, where we were supposed to give them protein, animal protein especially, I, I saw uh, some evidence that did not seem believable. The kids consuming the most protein, animal protein that is for the most part, they were the ones likely to get liver cancer by the age of four. I mean, it's spectacular. I said, no, wait a minute, that's not true. That can't be true. And then there was a study in India showing something similar and the Indian researchers didn't believe it themselves either. So there was only one choice for me because my my senior and myself were trying to put together this program for kids. And but we can't start giving them animal protein, which everybody was doing, you know, when you have that kind of data. So I basically I came home and applied for a grant from NIH and a grant for money to do the research. And I I just simply said, you know, I, I, I need to know. I, I didn't quite believe that. That was crazy. And we got into doing the research. And that I like science a lot. And science, science actually keeps control of our minds. You, you, you have to control your own biases. And, and we have to structure to do that. So I had biases. And uh, there's a certain way of doing that so that you don't get trapped into saying things that you know, you think might be true and pretend they are true. That's, that's crazy. So I did that research. I had that grant. That grant went on for that and an adjacent grant, a couple of others, went for 40 years, including the study in China. So in the beginning, it was in the laboratory trying to understand, you know, is this really true? Does, does animal protein promote the development of cancer? It was spectacular. It was absolutely spectacular. And, you know, we increase animal protein, turns the cancer on, it grows well. We switch it to plant protein or drop the animal protein, one or the other, uh, the cancer gets turns off. We can turn cancer on and off. And it wasn't a question of genes being responsible for the cancer, like everybody wanted to believe. That was the, that was the byline, you know, in the profession, that cancer starts with genes. Uh, and that's it, end of story. Whether you have, if you have the genes, okay, you got a problem. But no, what we saw was something dramatically different. It wasn't the genes. Cancer starts with genes. Well, everything starts with genes. 
but it was the way in which the gene activity is controlled. That's what it was. And that was, that's a question of nutrition. So it was, it was a big deal. I mean, for me, as I say, it's a major, it's a major uh, crossroads, I guess you could say, uh, in uh, understanding this discipline. So that, that we went to China, organized that study too with my colleagues, and I got some really good colleagues to work with, and fantastic opportunity in China. I mean, just I wanted to see if what we're in the laboratory with experimental animals, by the way, I wanted to see if this worked in humans. So we went to China it was a marvelous opportunity because you know cancer in certain parts of China is high and other parts of China is low. I mean, big difference, really huge differences. And so with an ideal opportunity to go there and collect information to see what, what really accounted for these high rates of cancer for about a dozen different kinds of cancers. And it turned out that basically, it was almost the same answer across the board. And now I might add the same answer for, for uh, viruses. That's the more exciting part of it just recently. Uh, this eating plants in a whole food form, it has this major, you know, comprehensive effect on our health that if we don't do it right, we are susceptible to a much higher risk for getting cancer, diabetes, kidney disease, heart disease, whatever. And uh, so I've been assembling some data, actually that were, some information was kind of lying around in science in years past that got published, but with a, what posing the suggesting the wrong, the wrong interpretation. So that's this new book is partly that too, that uh, if we go back and look at the data really seriously, not, not just get locked into, into all this fancy language, this very highly technical language that few people, few people can really understand, but rather try to explain it in a way that, you know, it, it becomes obvious to, I guess, everyone. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's in a way it's kind of fun. It's like playing chess. You know, you're you're there and you're competing against, against uh, an opponent, and you got alternative ideas. And I always enjoyed the idea of debate and being with people who didn't agree with what I might say. Well, that's that's the beauty of science, and and then getting active in that conversation, you know, in a civil manner. You know, you're not just shouting, hollering back and forth, <laughs> which has become too much of the di dialect for today, but actually sharing, you know, our interpretations, then coming up with something at the end of the day that's better than any of us might have thought. It's, it's beautiful. So, you say you don't mind having a debate. So when, when you have detractors or people that are trying to debunk the China study, that doesn't bother you? Well, it depends on who's doing the detracting and what they're saying. I mean, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of the detractors have other objectives and uh, they're supported by some very powerful interests. And, uh, you know, I, I don't care for that kind of debate. Uh, I mean, I did have to live early on after I had testified before a congressional committee, especially, you know, the National Academy panel, all that stuff. I was getting in the news quite a bit and People Magazine had a big story. Etc. Well, then I had crossed the line, and there was a petition put forward in my professional community right at the time I was selected to be the president 
was put forward to have me thrown out of my society the first time in 65 years. And I had to go to attend a hearing in Washington. And I misbehaved. And it was very powerful forces at that time. And they lost. I won, in a sense, when, when the vote came down to it. But that's the kind of stuff. And then on another occasion, you know, a petition put to have me thrown out of Cornell. Uh, and on and on. I can tell you, that's what I'm telling somebody stuff in the, in the book, because that's the kind of stuff that we're all up against. And there's only one thing. I have to say this because it's really significant. The public may not know this concept all that well, but I was able to do what I did because I had academic freedom. In other words, in a faculty position, you you uh, in due course, you can be selected to, to have a lifetime position along with the opportunity to say what you want to say. And I, I got that very early on in the 1930s and when I was in my 30s. And uh, so I was very fortunate. I didn't know at the time, but if I didn't have academic freedom, I would not be sitting here now telling this story. It's that simple. And uh, unfortunately, academic freedom in universities has been almost lost now, intentionally. That's part of one of the stories I'm telling him. I'm telling how that happened. So a lot of people want to call themselves scientists. Uh, and that's not, I have to say, I don't want to be too cross about this. That does not include people in the field of medicine. Uh, they're, they don't, they're not taught this. Uh, and now there's a certain proportion of them gradually learning to do course. But in any case, the point is that it's all about debating stuff, you know, in the open, fresh air, and having, as I say, these debates are possible. That's almost disappeared. Now everybody's sort of hunkered down, you know, in their own sort of little cubbyhole and want to tell their story with a, with a spin on their stories. And it's it's tough. So to answer your question, I, I don't I don't like people who are fundamentally unfortunately dishonest. They make up stories and uh, as if something. <laughs> That's not fun. But I do like the debate. I want to ask you a question about that, but first I want to thank Dave for his super chat donation and thank you, Dr. Campbell, for being here for the 1500th episode. Are you familiar with something called red pen reviews? No, I'm not. So I, we got really upset, the viewers of Chef AJ Live and myself, because I had the gentleman, Dr. Stephen Guillenet, who is the founder of this, they they review scientific literature, and they didn't give the China study a very good review. And uh, that, that really upset us, because, for example, one of the things he says is the claim that animal foods play a key role in, in cardiovascular disease and cancer is not very well supported. But your work sh exactly shows that it is very well supported. Yeah, that's a great question, and I've got a good answer. Uh, basically, uh, when protein, for let me start out with the word protein first. When, when in the, about 1840, in that period at that time, uh, there was a gentleman in Holland, a chemist, uh, who saw that dogs lived when they were fed meat. And if they didn't have meat, I mean, they could have survived another food too, but when they didn't have meat, they died. So he wanted to know what's in that meat. Being a chemist, he isolated a compound. He isolated it, and he had to give it a name. And he and his colleagues, they gave it a name after the Greek word 
P-R-O-T-E-I-O-S, proteos. What that word means first or prime importance. So the word protein was taken from the Greek language and it means first or prime importance. It became so significant, so important that protein, in this case from animal food, was, was considered the, the gem of life, the stuff of civilization, they called it. And then it kept that reputation throughout the ages. And so uh, finally, uh, that was in 1839 to be specific. Uh, finally, around uh, the turn of the century, around 1910 or so, there was a, there's some more work done that they realized that the, the, there was a compound of blood called cholesterol. And lo and behold, when people had high cholesterol, they had a, they seemed to have a higher risk of heart disease. So you know, they're making the connection, high cholesterol, high heart disease. And then they some nutritionists got involved and thought, well, high cholesterol comes from eating cholesterol. Well, that's an oversimplification, to be honest about it. So they, they quite frankly, they and several other research groups between 1910 and 1924, they got involved in trying to figure out what causes the cholesterol to go up in the blood. They finally concluded in 1924, 26, somewhere in that period there, uh, that looking over all this information that was being collected at that time, it was not the cholesterol we were consuming that caused the cholesterol in the blood. It was also not the saturated fat. It simply wasn't. And the conclusion was based on all this research that it was animal protein. And so unfortunately, you couldn't say anything bad about animal protein at that point in time. It was it was like a religion. So that didn't stick. It's what the, the, the community of uh, the scientific institutions, essentially, they were high on, still having a high regard for animal protein. They didn't want to think bad said about animal protein. So they started blaming it on saturated fat, total fat stuff for cholesterol. That was wrong, just dead wrong. And so I started working in my, in my time in the you know early 60s. And sure enough, it was the animal protein that caused the increase in cholesterol and in turn leads to heart disease. It, so that whole narrative that became so popular and believed by everyone, basically, is wrong. What really matters is changing the animal protein on the diet. And I saw it from the standpoint that when we consume more animal protein, that increases the risk for cancer. Unmistakable. And so that person you're talking about, I would love to debate him. That is absolutely, totally wrong. Uh, he doesn't know his or she or whatever it is. I, I, it's just simply not true. I'm going to send you that information. And if that's something that can be done, I'd, I'd be happy to set that up. I'm curious, Dr. Campbell, what has been the professional highlight of your career? Uh, working with students, I had a lot of graduate students working on their, you know, their graduate degrees, uh, master's and doctoral degrees, and I think that's the first thing. And I did enjoy teaching. I like to working with students all those years because there, you know, young people coming in, they're obviously uh, anxious to get on to doing something that they think might be worth doing and making it a career, and and uh, and they have open minds much better than older people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, to be able to work with them and then walk through, you know, the, 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 sub, the matter, the substance, teaching and classes, and, and then going back and forth. And that's where my debate thing comes from. I, 
three times during my career, I organized a, a small course on how to, how, what does it mean to debate? And uh, I had students doing that. We had to take sides and stuff like that. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun. I, and, and in science, literally classical science, not the technical, not the word the way science used today. That, that's crazy. The, use, the word science is used in a very crude way, superficial way. But in classical science, there's a very, it, it, it forms guardrails as to how we think. You know, first off, to be a true scientist, you're supposed to be a skeptic. You look at things and you can challenge it and you say, I don't believe that, whatever. And so you form a hypothesis for testing. We could say things like, the moon is made out of cheese. I'm convinced of that. But what, then what you're required to do next, with lots of transparency, organize some studies that everybody could look at and say, here, I'm going to do this and this and this to see if it's true. And then you collect some data. You collect some data. You actually back and forth, have that back and forth. You control biases. You control your own bias uh, and so forth. Finally, you get all done. You, you summarize it all up. You write it up. And then you send it out for professional publication. At that point, the rule, is, the rule of the day is you get reviewed by at least two professional, real professional people. They can disagree with you. They can do this and that. And then the author, in turn, gets a chance to reply, either answer the question, you know, effectively or not. And if, if that all works out, then it's published. That's the process. So we can never escape. We can never escape critique. We can never escape transparency. So there it is. You know, there's an there's an expression, for example, that I really like. I've used a lot. There's a guy by the name Neil Tyson, recently has used it, and I like the way he explained it too. And that is that, uh, you know, we own opinions, and most conversation in the public is ninety five percent of his opinions. We own opinions. That's fair enough. We don't own facts. When a fact is discovered, nobody owns it. That's beyond all of us. We just have to figure there, there it is, it can't be challenged. And so the, the idea of science is a really a beautiful endeavor. I'm sorry I went on so long about this, but you really got me wound up. It and that's the idea of working with students and teaching and you know, teaching something worth of worthwhile and and really being uh doing going to all efforts to remove personal bias. Of course, I had that. I had the. That was a problem with me in spades. I'm not coming from the farm, milking cows, and then you know, going off to school and doing a doctoral dissertation promoting the consumption of more animal protein for crying out loud. You know, that was just the exactly the opposite. So when I started in and doing the research and getting always challenged, I had to do what I saw to be true. If it, if it was not true. I didn't do everything right, I have to tell you. you. You do it, you organize your thoughts, you you create the data, and then you put it up for for discussion. And, uh, and then you're playing chess. I'll make a move, you make a move, you know, stuff like that. And finally, you end up with a with an idea. Holy crow. This, this stuff that I was seeing was the opposite of what I thought. And it was the kind of stuff that, uh, you know, keeps us healthy, for, for crying out loud. And so... No, I'm sorry, I went around a horn here too, too much. But in any case, it was in the late 1970s. Uh, we got some of the original data that was really challenging that whole concept. And so it was enough for Karen 
to uh, get really interested, we started changing our diet. And we so it took about 10 years to, uh, you know, make the full switch by the late um, 1980s. And so we were, we were there pretty much. Uh, actually, I can tell you a little story to put the cap on this. Uh, she was, before we had completely changed, she was diagnosed with advanced melanoma. That's the most serious kind of cancer. Um, and uh, so it was a bit of a shock because we thought we had done enough. And there it is. And she's in, at that time in her late 40s. And uh, I'm in my early 50s. And so uh, we went to the doctor and so forth and so on, an oncologist. And he he sold us the hook, line, and sinker, tried to sell us on the idea, sell her on the idea, what everybody's told to say. Like, you know, here we're going to have you do that. It advanced to her, her lymph glands. The cancer advanced there, so it's metastatic. That's a very serious stage. And so at that point in time, she goes in for the visit, the, the final visit where she's going to have an operation to take out the lymph, you know, that lymph tissue, number one, number two, be treated by the, all the chemotherapy. I had some second thoughts on it, but Karen knew also too. And I, I brought my paper in to show him, to try to educate the guy a bit. He brushed it away with his hand. And he, he said, this is what you're supposed to do. And she looked at him and she said, I'm not doing any of it. And he got angry. He said, you, ma'am, he said, you won't do this here in six months time. You're, I'm not going to be able to do anything for you. Well, so she really, that's when we got really strict for the, at the end of the day and tried to really do it right. That was now 20, what's that, what's that? About 22 years ago, I think it is, or something like that. Uh, and nothing ever happened. Uh, the body, you know, we, the, our body does stumble onto problems from time to time. And we don't know exactly why. But just having, having faith in what this whole thing is all about and doing it as well as one can is the best, best recipe. So she didn't, you know, that, that melanoma didn't go any further. And of course, you've heard people tell this, and I've seen, heard a lot of this. People say, and they had this and that, had that, and kind of staying with it. And uh, it's, it's nothing, nothing is every 100% per perfect, because we, we don't know perfect information. But the odds are so heavily in favor of kind of staying with it uh, and uh, and doing what we what what the science shows. Wow, you, you know, let me talk too much, maybe. No, you can talk. You can, hey, listen, you can talk as long as you want. I'm curious. You won, or you were inducted into the Vegan Hall of Fame in 2006. That was 10 years before the China study even came out, I believe. Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah. <clears throat> so you were doing great things even before that book was published. Well, I, I actually, you know, I was lecturing on this subject, you know, in the scientific community, I must say, in medical schools and stuff like that. I had been lecturing on that since the 1970s. So I had really already been lecturing at that time by, what is it, 25, 30 years. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was uh, enjoying that, in fact, too, because that was an opportunity to go to other professionals, you know, and get critique and and uh, get good uh, good feedback. Yeah, that was was kind of fun. 
Nice. You know, you were talking about when you changed your diet and Susanna wanted to know at that point, your children were probably already older. So was it a slow process or an overnight process? How did you get them to change their diet as well? Well, I can say, ask my wife, but but none of this, I can maybe tell what she always said to me. She, we started first off in 1980, more or less at that time, for example, uh, we started doing uh, quitting red meat and eating chicken and fish, you know, the white stuff. We thought that was a step in the right direction. Uh, and then, uh, and then also taking out the fat you know, because I didn't have quite that information on the animal protein in that context at that time. And so we started getting lower fat foods. And But, you know, we for during the 1980s, our favorite food was going to Kentucky Fried Chicken. You know, mostly living on that. And finally, uh, in the late uh, 80s, uh, I, I had a problem. I, I had, uh, early in my career, I was the one who first isolated a very toxic compound and I was paying a price for it. It's called dioxin. Dioxin is the active agent in Agent Orange. It was used in Vietnam for spraying the forest. And so uh, I was at MIT at the time in the 1960s, and, and uh, I was supposed to be isolated from this oil uh, that was being fed to chickens and turkeys to isolate from the oil this very, very toxic compound that was killing chickens. And I worked on it a couple of years, and finally get it more or less pure, but I never gave it a name because they didn't know the exact structure. And so that I left that project in 1965, took my other my new position at a university and uh, another university. And uh, two, a couple of years later, some chemists in Washington, this is the, at the, right in the middle of the Vietnam War. And, and uh, there's something mysterious about this Agent Orange killing people. And so they were trying to isolate the compound out of that. All of a sudden realized that I had isolated a couple of years before. And so they wanted me to come and tell my story. So I did. Uh, well, at that point in time, I, and they gave, it the, they gave it the name Dachshund. But then therein, for the next 25 years or so, I started having problems with my speech. I had sinuses that were cauterized, had to be cauterized. I had all kinds of problems. I had a friend who was working on it at the time he died at age 41. So I had these difficulties. And finally, in the late 80s, I could hardly speak anymore with a neurological problem. And uh, what I did, I, the, the National Health Association, you know, the oldest health group in the country, I should say, uh, they invited me to come and speak to their uh, convention because this was the time when the New York Times came out with a our study in China highlighted it and they wanted to hear me talk. And I said, I, I struggled. So I said, I can't talk. They said, well, come here anyhow. You know, we got some people here that aren't the traditional doctors. So I went down and struggled through a talk. And then they got me, uh, 10 of them got me off into a room. They looked at my case and said uh, they thought they had something to offer that might cure it. That turned out to be uh, fasting, water-only fasting. Uh, Alan Goldheimer, to be specific. And uh, so that's where I met Alan. And uh, I did lots of other things, too, went all kinds of doctors and stuff. But I went to Alan's place and uh, did a fast for 20, for two weeks. Uh, and I didn't think I accomplished much, to be honest about it. And so what Alan told me was, you got to come back here again. He said, sometimes this takes a, takes a while. So I came back about a year later. 
And uh, I was having to quit lecturing at that time. And uh, anyhow, I came back a year later with Karen because she had an asthma problem. We went through another 10-day, well, 12-day fast, I guess it was. And uh, sure enough, when I came home that time, just about, what was it, three weeks later or something like that, all of a sudden my speech problems started to clear up. And I had myself tested. And I had no dioxin. Whereas before I had been tested by the Canadian authorities, I had dioxin my blood 800 times the maximum amount allowed. And now, as I might tell you, uh, AJ, the dioxin problem really became a serious problem in Vietnam because there were people in Vietnam dying from this spray, this Agent Orange. Soldiers were dying. And they've kept a track of that ever since. This is, a, you know, at that time. They're estimating now that more than 300,000 American soldiers died of dioxin poisoning. That's five times the level who died in battle. That dioxin has got to be the most toxic event in the history of the human race, I think, just about. Um, and uh, so I, I was in the, into this diet thing, and I attribute my case, and with that fasting, going out to Alan Goldhammer's, uh, who's a who's a one of the one of the leaders of the National Health Association, wonderful organization by the way. Uh, so, and in fact, they're having a conference coming up in uh, June. Uh, you know, I think it's their seventy fifth year conference in uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. It's really quite an exciting opportunity. But uh, th th there's other people there, sort of like me, you know, just you know, being uh, sort of a a little bit different, being critics of the system. And uh, so that that whole, that was part of my story. And when, when we did that, by the way, we hadn't yet completely changed our diet. You know, and, and, and that was 1990, I think it was, something like that. We hadn't completely changed, but then I, uh, going out to Allen's, he was talking about, you know, going on a completely plant-based diet. He kind of liked what I was doing. I, I got interested in what he was doing. The combination of fasting, you know, trying to set set me on a path, uh, then making sure that you know it's all plant based. After that, uh, I'm still now. I'm sitting here talking about it, whereas you know that wasn't that wasn't likely. So it took quite a long time. Actually, it took at least ten years of making a switch. But you know, one of the keys you you'll you'll know this. I, I think one one of the key things that we do know, I'm sure you've seen this yourself. Uh, people can try, you know, they have problems and they can try this and, you know, trying to make a switch and and uh, and they can't quite stick with it. They can see the benefits within 10 days usually or something like that or two weeks, but they just don't stay with it. It's a very poor record. You know what keeps them on, on people keeping on this? And this is work out of uh, Italy, some friends of mine. If people will you know, come into trying this and on how, no matter how hard it is, if they'll stay on it for at least um, at least 20 days, maybe a little longer for some folks, even longer than that, what happens are taste preferences change. When our taste preferences change, then we don't want to go back. That's pretty simple. That's the way biology works. We are we become our body becomes accustomed to eating wrong food all our lives. And so all of a sudden to try to change is difficult, almost impossible. It's like like you're stopping smoking cigarettes. It's a similar kind of thing. Pretty soon you get to that point 
We say, hey, this is not so bad. And then you want, you, you don't want to go back. So. I agree with you. And, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the show about how there's a financial incentives for people to not eat healthily. But I also think food addiction is part of this because it's difficult for people because their taste buds have been steeped in sugar, fat and salt their whole life, whether they're eating animal products or not. And even when they know the truth, it's so difficult for them to implement. Absolutely. That's 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 the story in a nutshell. Yeah. Yep. Hey, Dr. Campbell, your last book is called The Future of Nutrition, and I'm curious what the future of the plant-based movement is. Where do you see it headed in the next 50 years? Well, uh, I think it's it's headed in a good place, I believe. Uh, what we need to bring under control, first thing, I mean, very practical things. Medical schools need to teach nutrition. Not one medical school or country teaches nutrition. So doctors are not exposed to this topic. And there's a reason for it because the whole art of medicine is to be able to treat disease with specific drugs, specific ages, change of one nutrient at a time, so forth and so on. That's what it's all about. And they don't advocate you know, total wholesale change. And so uh, I think uh, that that's what you need to come to recognize. Teach nutrition, it, 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 this is a matter for the policymakers to take seriously, you know, at a very senior level. And I, I worked quite a bit in that territory. They've got to take this seriously, recognize what it is, what it is. Uh, and then after that, uh, just find ways, you know, to have, let's say, one thing we could do is have some open debates in a, on the public media. You know, the 70, more than 70% of the advertising uh, of uh, news media sources, 70% is by the drug companies. You know, how can, how can people on air Keep their jobs if they start, you know, telling what I consider to be the truth. It's not very, not very easy. And so we are living in a system that's actually preaching uh, information that sells instead of information that creates health. Or in other words, we're creating wealth for the few at the expense of health for the many. So with that thought in mind, I, I think the only way to really get on track is finding ways for one thing, to simplify this message, which we talk about, and uh, and then get on with uh, having debates with others. Like that person you said, he said in China, you know, I, I would debate that person in a second. I'd like to know the data. That's the way, that's the way it works. And uh, I guess the data right now, after all these years, it, it's just, it, it, it'll, it can't, we can't go back. I, I'm really convinced it's, this is the way we should liberalize and and uh, eat this way. It's uh, and or otherwise it's the end of the road. Let's face it. If I can set that up, I sure will. You know, I asked you about what your your professional career highlights were. You mentioned students. What about being in forks over knives? Was that literally a game changer for you? Yeah, that was that was nice. Uh, uh, Brian Wendell and uh, Brian, uh, Lee Fulkerson who were organizing that in the beginning, uh, they came up, I was given a lecture or something like that, and Papa John McDougall's actually, Dr. McDougall's, and they took me up to a, a room, wanted to know if uh, I would agree to you know, participate, and they were thinking about putting that together, and I said, yeah, I would. So, uh, yeah, that, that was, I, I didn't know where I was gonna go, because in those days, you know, you, you do a video here and there, it's, uh, and they're nice, but, 
they, they took him pretty seriously, obviously. Uh, Lee was uh, really good. He was an artist and trying to, you know, organize the, the thoughts. And then, of course, Esselton came on, on board, too. A good friend of mine, obviously. Did you and, know Dr. Esselstyn before the movie? Yeah, I, I did. I, I knew him uh, a little bit before that because uh, this, mind you, this is 2011. I had known S from the early 1990s. And, and the reason I, and it's interesting, when New York, New York Times came out with an article in 1990 about the China study, and it headlined it. It was a, it was a feature article in their science section. So it got, got quite a bit of play at the time. And uh, so, uh, lo and behold, uh, this guy calls me up on the phone. I got some calls, buddy. He uh, <laughs> introduced himself and uh, said that he was doing some work, you know, with uh, people, you know, on, on heart disease. And so we got to know each other. That was S that's Dr. Esselton. We became good friends. He had he invited me out to a, a conference he was organizing in Arizona at the time, uh, and then another one, Disney World, and. So uh, we got to know with each of us knowing what the other is doing. And it's kind of like a hand and glove kind of thing. And uh, of course, Dean Orange, I met Dean Orange, we Googled uh, right there at the beginning. And they were, all three of them had been doing, you know, stuff that would lean in this direction without a doubt. And I, I had some science and it all kind of fit together. And so uh, ever since, uh, yeah, we've, we've been good friends. Uh, and when you take the practical side, you know, seeing people, seeing a heart disease reverse, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, who's going to, you get impressed to say the least. And I, I've seen that, of course, you know, on numerous occasions with other people having all kinds of problems. It's not just heart disease, it's just every which way. My, my son Tom is right now doing some very exciting stuff with cancer, the first time it's been done. Really? I tell us about it. I'd love to have him on the show again. He's wonderful. He's he's in a right now. He's in a little bit of sensitive spot because he's uh, uh, on, on he's sitting in a position to. I, I don't want to ask some more details because I don't want to to confound it. But uh, he's got some really good data that uh, are pointing us in that direction. It's really great, and I'm kind of excited about it. Well, when he's able to share, please let us know. Yeah, I sure will. He did have one publication. He himself is now as his MD. He's in the University of Rochester Medical Center. But he he uh, actually had one study. Of, it's a study of one person called you know case study, if you will, who has done so well and so thoroughly uh, that a 69-year-old man, stage three chronic kidney disease. And he put him on this, you know, made him stick to it. And after four months, the guy was back to what he felt like when he was 20. So the story goes, and and uh, and he was about to go into, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, dialysis? Dialysis, yeah. And so he didn't have to do that. And uh, so. That's was, amazing. So we talked a little bit about career highlights. Uh, what about uh, personal high, lifetime highlights? Do you have any of those? Uh, oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> what do I have? I, I mean, I, I one one I do remember very well stayed with me all my life, and that was my dad. Um, he was a farmer. Uh, he only had two years of elementary school education, so uh, and there was no education in our family. And uh, he 
basically uh, organized it so that we were about 50 miles west of Washington, D.C. on a farm. And he didn't want me to go to the local high school. He said, so he arranged it for me to drive. He, first year he drove, but to drive for five years, just over 100 miles a day to go to high school, the public school, because it was a public school because it's free and he didn't have money to do anything else. So, and the thing he said really stuck with me. He said, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, whatever else I did. And so that, that was a big deal. And so I got an education and, you know, all of that and kind of set me up uh, for, so, yeah, that's maybe one of the biggest things. Yeah. Yeah, and Aaron telling me to write the China study. Well, I wasn't inclined to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Smart woman you married, Dr. Campbell. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, that it sounds like your dad was amazing. Yeah, he he was he had a great integrity, a great uh, reputation among the farmers in the, in the county uh, for integrity. I, I met people who tears came to their eyes when he talked about it. I mean, I, I just yeah, so you can't. That. that is beautiful. How do you feel? Like in general, I mean, may I say your age? Is that is that a permissible? Yeah, yeah. To, okay, 89. 89, you'll be 90 next year. Hopefully there'll be a big party. And uh, how do you feel? Well, uh, I don't take drugs. I haven't, uh, just occasionally I've tried, you know, a couple of things, but basically I don't live on drugs, I live on food. Uh, but, you know, I feel, I feel really good. We, uh, that may, I don't know whether it's a little bit, People find it uh, controversial, I guess, but I don't care. <laughs> I'm going to say it. Uh, when the uh, pandemic arose and that virus arose, um, you know, there was a wild, lot of wild claims being made about it. You're going to die if you don't do this and that stuff, stuff like that. And uh, I, I was in my principal uh, professional arena in the early part of my career for the first 10, 15 years was, psycho was pharmacology. So I was very much imbued into the drug approach, if you will, and studying stuff that way. And uh, anyhow, uh, uh, I saw what they were saying. I could not believe what they were saying. To me, it was not reliable. So everybody, especially our age, is supposed to get vaccinated. I did not. Karen and I did not. Uh, and uh, for a reason, because we had done work on viruses, and we had data from China. It was spectacular. Uh, you know, it was almost 9,000 people we had tested for their active virus and inactive virus and antibodies and all the rest. It was a very serious virus. It's what causes liver cancer, which is the fifth leading cause of death in the world, by the way. Very serious virus. What we found, and this is a big study, the best data I think I've ever, ever gotten, people who consume a little bit of animal food, even only one-tenth of what we do in the West. They were the ones that got the virus, did not get the antibodies, and they died. They had a much higher rate of getting liver cancer. People consuming plant foods, no. They formed antibodies, and they did not get the liver cancer, according to the highly significant results we got. So I had a lot of confidence in the fact that this nutrition thing that works on heart disease and cancer also works on viruses, too. So I, I did it with that in mind, and we didn't get the the vaccine. And people thought we were crazy, and you know, oh, there's we're some kind of conspiracy group or something crazy like that. And uh, so went on, and 
finally, uh, just last October, we did get infected. We were tested positive, but we didn't get the headaches, the nausea, and, and all that sort of stuff, and came through it without without the uh, vaccine. And uh, I know they were so effective in scaring the, the devil out of everybody in the country for whatever reason people want to think about. Uh, and uh, so we, did, we didn't do that. I just wanted to, I, wa I wanted to publish it, by the way, this data we had to two of the best, number one, almost number one, number two journals in the world, and I published there before. I sent it in and I saw something that I never saw in my life. I've, I've, I've written you know, close, 375 publications. I've been very active in that area. I sent it for publication. The people who looked at it would not even allow the scientists to review it, as I said before. They, they said, we're not going to review it. And so that, that happened two different journals. That was scary. And I say that is a really serious problem because now even science, as I've known it, grown up with it, and have a great deal of respect for the way it's supposed to work. You know, they didn't even want the public to get out to the public. So that's the way it was. How do you spend your days? Oh, in front of the computer mostly. <laughs> I got to finish this book. Uh, but uh, yeah, that, that's it. I'm I'm done. After that, I'm going to be doing some other things. And, Oops, we got another, another super chat. Thank you, Billy. Are you using the same publisher? Yes. At this, at this point in time, I, I don't mean to make a confession here on the on this video, but yes, that's it. That's the intent. Nice. Good. So, so maybe it'll come out next year sometime? Yes, I hope so. Maybe yeah. this fall. That's great. Well, I'm glad you're feeling well. And you have Karen to make all your delicious meals so you don't have to deal with that. I don't have to, I don't, as I said one time before, when they were trying to put me in, put all those uh, recipes in the book in the beginning, I didn't, I said, I don't even know where the pots and pans in the kitchen are. Why would I do that? So. <laughs> A lucky man. It seems like all the wonderful men in the plant-based movement have wonderful uh, people behind them, like Karen and Mary McDougall and Ann Esselstyn to make their meals. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, absolutely. Do you do you have time to exercise in the day? Do you still exercise? Yeah, I do. That's that's critical, by the way. I'm, I'm really keen on that. Um, I did get some problems, and maybe because of age, or maybe because of the dachshund problem. I don't know. I was getting difficulties with balance, and uh, and some that sort of nonsense, and little brain fog, if you will. I said, "Oh, it makes you safe. But anyhow, uh, exercise is the key to keep that in the background so we we walk every day never fail and uh i do some special exercises in the morning too so it's working out pretty well yeah Good. you know anything i you know i've interviewed you a few times you don't seem to have any pets is that correct pets pets grew up with with uh in my lifetime growing up three dogs every they did everything with me i did everything with them no yeah yes i do it but very much uh uh, that's fine. That's great. Uh, I don't know whether that's the argument, though. This, you know, standalone kind of argument. Some people, yes, fine, dandy. If you if you use that as the argument for changing your diet, so you don't eat animals. But one one of the troubles me about the to be honest about it, AJ, is the vegan community of focusing on that as if that is the one and only way that we should behave. You know, just to have pets. But then they don't talk enough about the biggest challenge 
on that front, incidentally, is don't let's decide not to eat the animals. We're, we're eating them by the billions, you know, almost on a daily basis for growing our love. So that to me is the biggest issue of all. Yeah, sure, I would have a pet. We never we never had a pet in the house. So being on a farm, you didn't bring dogs in the house. And uh, so that's that was my ticket. I've got some great stories to tell about the the dog I had, or three dogs over that period of time. But uh, yeah, so I, I I can appreciate you know those kind of movements, those kind of sentiments. That's not the issue. It's just it, what I'm more interested in and became interested in was how do you tell the story in a way that the public can get to know it? And uh, to use that argument all by itself, uh, I was convinced that was. That's not that's not going to convince everybody of changing their ways. Yeah, but sometimes you wonder what will you know. Hey, this is this is an interesting question from Dina. Did you ever smoke? Yeah, I did uh, very very shortly, and only at nighttime, just you know, sitting around. And when I was in uh, college or in in uh, not in college, my graduate school days. Yeah, I did it for maybe what was it? Two years, three years. It wasn't. It wasn't much, and uh, so I quit that early on. Fantastic. Here's a fun question from Melanie. What is your favorite meal? Whatever Karen fixes. She doesn't. <laughs> just, no, I, I, I uh, we have low fat. You, you know that story really well. You've got quite a name for yourself. Uh, you know, the added oil. That's, that's not good. Or added sugar, added salt. Um, you know, kind of stay away from that. And, you know, vegetables are always vegetables, greens, lots of greens. Of course, tubers as well, you know, for a source of energy. And uh, I, don't, I don't know, I, I, you know, I can't put my finger on one very well. It's just a mixture of a variety. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure I have a favorite meal. There's one that uh, we called the Dominican dish for a while, it kind of liked. Uh, it was rice and beans. Our daughter, Leanne, was in the Peace Corps in the Dominican Republic. So we got caught on to that because that, in a sense, in a primitive way, it was popular dish. And so Karen turned it into, you know, uh, with rice, using brown rice and, and lots of salad, dumping a lot of salad on top of that. And, you know, and uh, you know, some other dressing, good dressing uh, out the oil. Yeah, that combination was... Uh, that has been quite served us well. Did you go on the cruise this year? No, I didn't. I'm sorry. I'd say I, I did not do that. Um, Sandy uh, Pukel, a very good friend. He he's been a fantastic job. I I think I'd gone for 13 years, uh, each time, and uh, no, I didn't this time because one note. Wait a minute. Was it? Was it 1920? I haven't done it in two years. Yeah. Uh, well, I just remember that I would go to bed at nine o'clock and you'd be up on the top deck dancing the night away. <laughs> yeah, that was one, one of the fun things I did. Yeah. So there's a question that was sent in in advance to us from from Susan. Dr. Campbell, what do you how do you feel about the promotion of high amounts of omega-3 fatty acids like flax seeds 
or the promotion of supplements like DHA? Are there downsides or potential harmful consequences from taking too much fatty acids as a nutrient or supplement? Well, I'm not into the supplements, to be honest about it. And, and, and I did that for two reasons. One is that the science doesn't support that because there's, there's supplements have been used and tested as if they're good. And they are good when we see them as food. In other words, they're part of food, right? The classic example of that was published in 1981 with beta-carotene. At that time, beta-carotene was a very promising supplement. It's the, it's the precursor for vitamin A. It's called like pro-vitamin A, essentially. And uh, they, there was a study done among smokers that had been smoking for 30 years, at least 30 years. So these are high-risk lung cancer patients, right? So they, they found that People are smoking more longer period of time, they get more lung cancer. That's pretty clear. And once smoking 30 years or more, they're the ones who got the most lung cancer, obviously. Well, within that group, they decided to do something else at that time. And they decided to measure in the blood something about nutrition among that group. And they got their most spectacular results. Beta carotene in the blood, which is a reflection of consuming consuming plants, if you will, particularly green leafy plants. Beta carotene was was uh, the lowest in the ones among these smokers. All they had all had a very high risk for lung cancer. And they divided them in four parts, a perfect dose-response relationship. The more beta carotene in the blood, the less lung cancer. In fact, it was so spectacular that people smoking for 30 years had with who had the highest beta carotene levels in the blood their risk of getting lung cancer was about the same as non-smokers. And I saw that at the time and sort of got involved in that conversation on a professional side to some extent. Well, what came out of that study was that, oh, wow, this beta carotene really looks pretty special. What is it? And so what they decided to do, and this was the second study, was between Finland and the United States, what they did, they organized a group of 29,000 smokers and they decided to give them beta carotene. The supplement beta carotene. This is in the, when supplements were first being introduced, more or less. And, what, and they did a study, and they, run, they figured they had to go at least eight years to see a result. Well, they had to quit after five years because the people smoking the, the smoking and getting the most beta carotene, it didn't depress lung cancer; actually, increased lung cancer. This is classic. So, beta carotene in the form of food works like other nutrients. When you take it out and you put it in a supplement like that, it does not. It has the opposite effect. It significantly increased lung cancer risk. So well, shortly after that, I was actually asked by the National Academy of Science to represent them and big trials that were being held on the whole question about supplements. And so I, it was my job to look at all the claims that were being made about it. And it became clear to me, supplements not the way to go. That's one, one point. So I had that background and it, in, in one sense. On the, what you just asked for about the fat and omega-3s and omega-6s, omega-3s, you know, we can't convert it necessarily all the right way. Uh, and we need to have the product, the DHA, if you will, uh, since we don't get enough omega-3s. That's a very narrow point of view, especially in the light of not knowing what, what supplements really do. And so the omega-3, it doesn't act alone necessarily by itself. The really important thing is the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6. So if we're on a high omega-6 diet, you put some omega-3 in there, 
you can you can see some interesting data that looked like it might help, but you just have what and then also adding the product of omega three, in respect of what people necessarily do, and expect to get those results. Uh, they both have the downsides. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about all of mostly theory, but also real life, you know, data. And uh, so I don't, I don't go for the omega three, to be honest about it, or DHA, uh, because it's, 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 it's a sidetrack. It's a good way to make money, but it actually it's, it steers people away from what they really need to do. The ba basic thing is use the whole food. They do not need to, you know, focus on those individual nutrients like, like that. So I have, I, I actually gave testimony on that in some major hearings at the time. And I was really pressed, you know, to make the argument, the, the basis for the discussion. So, yeah, that's where I am. Yeah, there, there's some disagreement about that, as I'm sure you know, in the plant-based community. Yeah, I know, but I want to see the results. So those who disagree, I want to see the results. I want to see it published. I want to see it organized in a proper way. You know, everybody can form opinions. That's what I said before. We all have opinions. We don't know we can have the wrong opinions. It has to be formally done, really, and show the effect. I, that's the only way I can accept it. Great. Uh, Peter says, Dr. Campbell is the nutrition science messiah. And this is just a fun question from Randy, who's watching live. What was your favorite automobile? Oh, my gosh. I'm not sure I had any. Uh, <laughs> I, I I had a Datsun, you know, when I was in college, and just for sentimental reasons, I I had that little yellow Datsun. But other than that, I I don't I I, I like the uh, I've just had a recently an opportunity to ride in a Tesla a couple of times, and all the things they do is impressive. But you know that's that's not in my pocketbook actually, and so. It looks like a you know promising car because you know the ones that are not using gas, if you will, uh, that's the way we need to go. So anything to go in that direction is is one of my favorites. Has to be. Nice, but did you have like because you you saw a lot of cars? I mean, you're older than other people, so you you saw some really classic cars growing up, probably. Yeah, well, the first car I drove was a Model T Ford, 1929 Model T Ford, believe it or not. Uh, and it was still running really well. And that's where I learned to drive. It was on a farm, actually. And we, I drove it around and we pulled out the rubble seat in the back and we could put corn stalks in there and stuff and carry it around. And I did that for a while and then tipped it over in a ditch one time. But yeah, that's where I learned my lessons in the Model T Ford. You know, I don't think I've ever heard you mention this. How did you and Karen meet? Oh, my gosh. Uh, this is kind of, kind of interesting. So I was in school, of course, and I didn't uh, get excited about marriage at all until I finished up my PhD. Came back home again, and I was, uh, I held, owed some money, and I had an opportunity to work in India. My dad said, no, no, you can't do that. Uh, you got to pay off your debt first. That was near home in Virginia, Northern Virginia, outside of Washington. So I came there and I was looking around for a job. And I just happened to, uh, on that day I was looking for a job, I rode into this uh, testing laboratory, FDA testing laboratory, which was kind of in my territory. 
And I walked in and uh, there was an opportunity and the guy hired me almost on the spot, I guess. And I uh, came back the next Monday. That was on Friday. On Monday, I came back in. She was sitting there. And uh, so she was assigned to me as my secretary. And so one thing led to another. We uh, obviously, I guess, fancied each other. And so that's the way it started. Um, we had five children and now we've got 11 grandchildren. But, you know, I tell you, just I just came back. Yes, it was today, Tuesday. Yeah, I just gave a lecture and just uh, half a, a block away from that place, just a block in that town. It's right near Dulles Airport. And that that's where I met her and we married there in the church, right in the, in the site of the stage that I was speaking on. So, yeah. It was just... As I say, that was 61 years ago. You've been married for 61 years? Well, it'll be, 60, it'll be 61 this September. So, yeah. 60 years. Wow. That's fantastic. You know, no, you were 60, about 60, the 61 in September. Yeah. 61. Well, congratulations. That's, that's something to be said for having a marriage that long. So you were talking about the link between animal protein and cancer. And one of the viewers, Nancy, is asking, what do you think about alcohol? Because many of the doctors that come on the show talk about the strong link between alcohol and at least certain types of cancer. True, true. And I, I agree with them. Uh, I, I, um, I didn't automatically believe that in the beginning necessarily. I, I'd like to have a beer and some wine and stuff like that. But uh, the work of uh, Walt Willette and his group at Harvard I thought was pretty convincing. They had a big, big group of people and following them, and the the uh, nail in the coffin really was for breast cancer. I think there uh, that alcohol is just—I mean—you have to declare it a poison. It really is. Uh, it's that strong. The data are really impressive, and people would drink more, more uh, alcoholic drinks, if you will. Uh, breast cancer is, is a one of the key cancers that are affected. And uh, yeah, and we've worked out some of the details of that in science. And so it's uh, it's really un unmistakable, I think. Uh, as far as uh, alcohol for other cancers concerned, I know it's been mentioned for colon cancer and a couple of others. Uh, so yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't need it. Uh, and I say the data for, for breast cancer especially is Pretty, pretty damning. Yeah. Well, it's not a whole plant. No, it's not. No, like you mentioned, you know, a lot of a lot of the viewers are impressed that you knew how many years you were married because a lot of men don't even know the date of their anniversary. <laughs> really? Yeah. Really. Well, that's a pretty big event. I would think they should know that. <laughs> <laughs> you're funny. What? what I, not that you're going anywhere anytime soon, but what do you think you'd like to most be remembered for? Telling the truth. Having fun, I guess. I, I just chose a career, you know, thanks to older people really uh, kind of coaching me and giving me opportunities. I, I didn't have any set, things set in mind when I was young, but uh, I just kind of fell in one thing after another. And uh, the science, I just, I liked that a lot. And to be remembered for, I don't know, I won't. I won't know that. I, I, I just don't know. I, I really enjoyed uh, science and teaching me you know, a lot of things that I would, had fun relating to other people. 
uh, and then finding so many people who seem to like that idea. And uh, yeah, that's just sticking with sticking with it, you know, in spite of uh, the difficulties of pushback, I guess, which we have to do in these days, because the pushback is really serious. If you get in this business, especially in a scientific establishment, if you get in this business, uh, especially talk about the things I did, watch, you get tremendous pushback. And uh, for some reason, I was lucky to believe in that concept, you know, that you just tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Yeah. That was, I did not create that word, that, that phrase, as you know. <laughs> so, but my, my dad really took it very seriously. Yeah. And, so just sticking with it, just having persistence. So you you don't seem to get your feathers ruffled easily. Is that correct? Uh, and there's something that's all relative, I'm sure. Uh, not too much. I've just learned to deal with, I, you know, I, I can always fall back on that idea. You know, and even though I may say things and do things that are very unpopular, and it maybe it goes up against stuff, uh, they, they can do all they want to say what they want about it. But my answer to that is, I, you know, I'm, I'm willing to be wrong. That's for sure. I'm willing to be wrong, but I want it done in the right way. Somebody who has a different point of view, I want them to show me the data and say it publicly and just show it. So okay, here, here's all, look at this, all this. Here's the way I got it. And here's what it does. It's the only way to move right in, this, in that way. And unfortunately, most people don't do that. They just get they get caught up in believing what they want to believe for whatever reason, and then get, kind of get stuck in it. I'm talking about most people. I'm talking about those who, who are out there preaching, you know, to other people. I think going out there and standing, you know, up in front of other people and telling them what you believe, you better, you better be telling the truth. I can't stand the thought of if you know if, if they say something wrong. Okay, that's fine. That's great. I learned something. But uh, it has, has to be that way. Colleen would like to know, who are some of your favorite plant-based doctors and colleagues? Uh, well, it's, a couple of them are not very well known. Uh, one of them, I mean, because they're into science, and so they came to it for several reasons, what I did. One guy, his name is Tim Key, Timothy Key, and the uh, Oxford University and. Ireland or England, uh, we published with them. Uh, he, he comes in strictly from the uh, scientific point of view. He's not out lecturing, but uh, he's a very honorable fellow. Uh, another is uh, David Jenkins. I know him. He's been he's been on the show. He's a lovely man. Yeah, Dave, David and I've been friends for a long time, and uh, he's trained well. And uh, he was into. Uh, veganism, I think, fairly early age. Now, he wasn't telling anybody about it, <laughs> interestingly, but uh, yeah, he's, he got with the science and kind of stuck with it. He's been involved in policy work like I have, and so we've crossed paths that way. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, I, I, I don't hate to mention people because then somebody else would be annoyed because I didn't mention them, but I, I'll mention a couple. Uh, Caldwell Esselton, very good friend of mine, he, he seemed that what I liked about his approach was his, uh, the way he handles patients. And he's very sincere about what he does. He really cares about his patients. 
two big, big things. You know, and uh, so we did lots of things together, went to China together and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, so I, I give him high marks uh, in, my, in my book, if you will. Uh, there, there's a lot of good people. I, I, uh, John Drew earned, uh, you know, came to know him early on. He, he was out there, had some courage, you know, and when he was in school in Hawaii, and he just thought he saw, he saw something, you know, about the native Polynesians. And uh, they were, they, the uh, younger people were not as good at health as the older people, really what it was. And he stood up to, you know, to voice his opinion and, you know, got some back, got some flack on that one. But he kind of stuck with, stuck with it. I like that kind of attitude. Dean Orish, another one. Uh, Dean Orish went out and did, it, did his own thing with, uh, you know, in a, in a holiday inn, I think it was, got some money to, you know, some, I believe some money from Texaco. I don't know whether it's true or not, but uh, we've been very good friends. And he likes to get into the some of the details of the science to justify his uh, work. It's, so, oh, and, and Michael Clapper, I, mean, I have to mention him. I think Michael Clapper is, is a, he's a first class individual any, any way you look at it. <laughs> yeah, I just, so you mentioned China, and Joyce said, "If you could, if you could live in another country, which one would you find the most ideal?" Uh, Scotland. My father was an immigrant from Northern Ireland, Scotch Irish background, so I'm kind of locked into where my ancestors came from. We've been there. I like that that part of the world. Yeah. Are you currently reading any books? No, uh, well, I just finished one. Uh, what is it? Let me see if I got it here. Oh, here. And do you read? Do you read only nonfiction, or do you ever read fiction? Uh, I have read fiction, of course, but not too often. I guess. Neither. You know, it's weird that I I almost never read fiction books. I prefer nonfiction. Yeah, well, that's what I do. This in here, I'll I advertise this guy. I don't know him personally. Says story messenger, a comic perspective on civilization. Neil Tyson. Like What's it about? What's it about, Doctor Campbell? And uh, he, he really gets into the question concerning you know uh, evaluating science. He's an astrophysicist. In fact, he's the director of the uh, oh, what's the name of the, the big uh, astrophysics museum in uh, New York City. Mm, I can't think of it. Uh, so he. He, he goes through making arguments about how to evaluate science, if you will. Of course, I, I like that. He, he's not on the, on the same wavelength with me, though, on his, his ideas about <clears throat> biology. I've been trying to get a hold of him. On a, you know, I'd like to be on the air with him. He gets a lot of TV time. I've got to get him. I mean, I, I like his think, way of thinking, but somehow he never got caught up in the... Uh, Idea of biology, it's more in astrophysics. The Hayden Planetarium. Oh yeah, Hayden Planetarium. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jay wants to know if you're still on the lecture circuit. Yes, I have been. Uh, even during this pandemic, I, I've been to a few places. I got to call that to halt here soon. Uh, but uh, yeah, I I got more. I don't know. I got plenty of invitations, but I, I 
And I don't like to turn down people, but I'm going to have to do that. <laughs> yeah, if you want to finish your book in time. Yeah. Do you ever do anything just for fun, like watch a show? Yeah. Yeah, recently doing some of that. Like, can I ask what you like to, what you enjoy when you do watch? Well, you ever think I'm a bit nuts that it was all in the same stream, but there's a show on that's called uh, uh, Amsterdam, I think, Amsterdam Hospital, something It's a sort of a, a bunch of uh, episodes, quite a few of them, uh, about a hospital setting. Uh, and just finished all those. And I, I just keep trying to sort out in my mind what was the purpose of all that. But what they actually show is what it's like to be in a hospital, a very busy hospital with you know a lot of tragedies happening. And so I don't know, I get I'm sort of in that territory, of course, and I probably get caught up in that, but I don't uh, and yeah, I gotta I, you're asking a question I'm embarrassed to say. I don't do enough relaxing to do that kind of thing. I'm always caught up in you know, whatever it is, science, politics, yeah, I, I like, uh, I get very caught up in the political affairs of the day. That's okay. You, you, as long as you're enjoying your life. You know, I'm curious, the books that you wrote, Oh, The China Study, The Future of Nutrition, if you were rewriting them today or updating them, is there anything you would change or add? Well, that's what I'm doing with this new book. I wouldn't change. I would add to it. I mean, those three books and another one that you know, they're, they're, were just kind of a learning curve for me. First, the China study was, you know, come to realize this concept of so-called holism, everything working together, which is quite a departure from some of the things we do in science, especially the way we do in medicine. Then the second one, whole, then I try to get into a little discussion on, you know, what's a scientific basis for that concept. And the last one, which I did with uh, my grandson, believe it or not, she's a good writer, um, The Future of Nutrition, where I'm trying to outline there, document, if you will, some of the mistakes we've made in the past. And uh, we've made some serious mistakes that are still hanging around as if, as if they are facts. And, and what, what they do is actually mislead people. So that, that's what The Future of Nutrition was. And this one here is more about well, as I said before, the kind of things I saw firsthand was not in the interest of the public, but nonetheless got adopted. Have all the Campbells somewhat followed in the family footsteps? Yeah, there's 20, I think right now, accountant spouses. So I guess there's 24 of us, 25. Everyone is each us. We all do, no exceptions. And Karen must make it easy for Thanksgiving meals. Oh yeah, Karen had a lot to do with that. Really, I'm really serious about that. Uh, she uh, raised the kids. I mean, some of them were already in their teens when we started, but nonetheless, uh, that's what that's what was for dinner. If they wanted to eat at our house, that's what they ate. But they they got into really early. Most of all, our grandchildren got in from day one. So. Yeah, we, we don't have anybody spraying. One one got on to maybe occasionally have a hamburger. I'm not gonna say which one, but he uh he's he's on track too. 
That's great. Do, do they, I mean, we know that like, uh, you know, your son, Tom is a doctor. Leanne has written so many plant-based books, Nelson documentary filmmaker. So do all of them do something in the plant-based space? Most of them. Uh, and Nelson's into filmmaking. He's got a new film that was the, he'll, I guess, tell you about it. It was won the Diamond Award in the Los Angeles Festival. Um, that's been quite impressive. Uh, taste. He did plant puridation. Uh, Leanne, our daughter, she she got a doctorate in uh, curriculum development education, and then she was in the Peace Corps. Peace Corps before that. She's now in the Dominican Republic, and she's made a great. She got a big reputation in that part of the Dominican Republic, and she we our on online uh, program with Cornell nutritionstudies.org. That's we have a new dimension, new direction for that. And that is, we've just got a, a big chunk of land right near her that for years was used for raising cattle, sending meat to deer. And uh, so we now bought the land with a big chunk of it. And all the forest was torn down. It's a really sad story. Semi-tropical forest, actually, in, in, in a serving a community, uh, all the kinds of things that you and I like and others, uh, but then uh, a guy bought the land some years ago. He was the henchman for the dictator Trujillo. And he was responsible for killing, you know, the enemies. And so then he had all his cattle, you know, for years. So just we just succeeded in putting that, getting that. We're going to have a new program of being able to take students down there for, you know, 10-day tours and stuff, learning how the environment connects with food. That's, the, that's one of the biggest stories of all these days. You know, consuming the wrong food, it makes us sick, right? This is livestock. That's the same thing that leads to the destruction of the environment. It's the number one cause of climate problems. It all hangs in together. And it's also the number one cause of cost of health care. We have exorbitant health care costs. It causes a lot of bankruptcies of a lot of families when they get older because they're eating wrong food and getting sick and all that sort of stuff. So we we got this program now with, with our nonprofit that Leanne is now the president of that. And she's the one that, uh, with her staff, got some good things going. Uh, Tom is a physician at University of Russia, so medical center, of course, he co-authored the book with me, the China study. Yeah, they're all... The others who didn't quite get there, nonetheless, have taken great interest in it. One of them is a, you know, special special ed teacher in schools, really worked with children, and he had me come and speak to all the, all the, uh, you know, what is it, the superintendents group meeting or whatever it was, and another one's into working with doing working on AI as it relates to trade and economic development. I see Karen over your shoulder in the kitchen. Is it after dinner? No, it's, uh, no, it's not. Uh oh. She, she usually, if I do these things, she wants to get out of out of sight because she. <laughs> then I better let you go, so you don't even know what you're having for dinner tonight. No, no, we did have it just before this. Oh, oh what'd you have? What did I have? Uh, sort of like a, a just we eat light this time of night. Remains meals at uh, noontime, like the Abbotus. 
Yes. Do you know who Dr. John Scharfenberg is? No, but I gave a lot of lectures to the Adventist group. Yeah, he, he's an Adventist physician who's almost 100. And he was on my show and he doesn't eat dinner. He eats breakfast and lunch. That, 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 come this time of night, you know, you just finish off. I just had a sandwich and some greens and that was it. But you really eat really light if you eat it all. But and that's what they do. And it's kind of a nice way to do things, I think. Yeah, it's it's hard. Social, socially, it's a little bit more challenging, but. Yeah, that's right. It, it is. It's because most people are working during the day and that's the meal that they get to eat together. But hey, you know, it seems to work for him. He's almost 100. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love for you to meet him. He's a dear man, just like you. Any closing thoughts, Dr. Campbell? Any message that you want the world to know? Um, probably for young people. I, I work so, so much with students in that, at that particular age. I think we all know that those of us are older now that if we looked at a part of our lives that was maybe more um, determinative of what we were to become, it's that age when you're just coming out of high school and then you know going into your college years or whatever one chooses to do, to make decisions at that point in time, they're, they're lifelong decisions. And uh, I've gotten some feelings about that, you know, that young people somehow, they their thoughts wander all over the place, like like what we all did, you know, this way and that way, stuff like that. But those decisions made that point in our lives are critical, are critical. And I don't know, <laughs> I, I just like to tell young people, take, take a close look, take time before you go off and, you know, get hooked up and uh, sort of get some sense about what you're doing before you decide to do it. And, uh, yeah, do what, what one likes, obviously. And, you know, it can work, you enjoy going to work every day. Yes. Too many people don't have that opportunity. They, they can't sit back and try to decide those things. They just have to do what they have to do to make some money. I understand that. So I'm a, more of a progressive in that sense, you know, concerned about the people in our society who are disadvantaged you know, through no fault of their own. And so I'm, I'm big on to, you know, our society looking after each other a little bit more. Well, Dr. Campbell, it's such a pleasure catching up with you. It's been a couple of years since you've been on the show. I hope it won't be that long till the next appearance and that you'll come on whenever your book is getting ready to launch so that we can let people know about it. Well, I'd be glad to, and uh, as always, this is uh, you're, you're you're engaging. <laughs> well, thank you. And they don't know about the fun times we've had together in airports telling jokes with, that that are not appropriate for this show. You have the best sense of humor. Yeah. yeah. Well, love love to Karen, Doctor Campbell. Okay, great. Thank you so much for having me. It's really, really oh. good. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please tune in tomorrow for two more Campbells. Nelson Campbell and Kim Campbell will be on the show at 2 p.m. Pacific time. Thanks again, Dr. Campbell. Good night. Bye-bye. Yeah.